We left off in our previous session listing kinds of evil speech, which the scriptures and ancient Jewish wisdom designates as speech, which is destructive and therefore sinful. The Hebrew phrase, Lashon Hara, is the umbrella label for several kinds of evil uses of the tongue. Gossip, slander, backbiting, telling negative information about someone that is true but unnecessary, and only meant to harm their reputation. The rabbis also speak of what is called the dust of Lashon Hara, referring to that which is exactly not evil speech itself, but so close to it that it's the dust of evil speech. Facial expressions which affirm the evil being said, leading questions meant not to gain needed information, but only to manipulate the speaker into saying evil things about the person in question. We ran out of time and only mentioned a vitally important term on this subject, banam panim, which is to whiten the face. This refers to publicly shaming a person solely for the purpose of shame itself. The pall of the face refers to the horror suffered by the victim, which signifies not only the physical reaction to being shamed, but which also speaks of a death mask. To slander is to murder. With current public electronic media at our fingertips, we are now capable of spreading gossip and slander at a skyrocketing rate far beyond the feather pillow example that we spoke of in the last session. So understanding Banam Panim in its destructive potentials is of far more importance than ever before. Sadly, we all know the stories of people who've taken their own lives as the result of their faces being whitened due to evil communications about them. It's happening in some form every second now all over the world. From the vantage point of heaven, it must appear like the entire planet is covered with an ever-increasing layer of poisonous hatred. Why am I spending so much time here? If you'll stick with me, I hope to make it plain, and I hope together we can enter a new place of spiritual authority as a result of coming to some deep heartfelt repentance and renewed vision for spiritual battle. There's certainly a place for righteous anger. We know both from Scripture and from human experience that some things are so evil that to fail to be angry at them is a sin in itself. The prophet Jeremiah cries out against the high-handed, arrogant sin of his people. Forget making their faces white with shame. He couldn't even get them to turn red with embarrassment. He says in Jeremiah chapter 6 and in chapter 8, you don't even blush anymore. Godliness cannot live in the midst of ungodliness and not call things by their true names. Speaking the truth, even with anger or tears or loudly in dramatic confrontation, is certainly not ungodly in the right contexts, and would be ungodly not to do so in the same contexts. In Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus refers to Herod as that fox. Fox does not at all mean what it means in our vernacular, cunning or sly. That's not what it is in Hebrew. In Hebraic terms, it means someone of little or no value. It's a very demeaning term. The fact also that it is a feminine form in this context may also be referring to the effeminate weakness of Herod 
and the evil power of Herodias to manipulate him into murderous action as she did with the killing of John the Baptist. At any rate, Jesus was not being harsh or vulgar. He was not speaking loosely. He was stating reality. Herod had reached a place of such inhumanity and debauchery that he was on the same level as the seducing false teachers uh, which are mentioned by Jude and in Second Peter, where they refer to them as brute beasts. So as we go on here, we need to keep practicing the right balance. No one in Jesus' audience would have thought, Jesus, remember the law of Moses now. You shouldn't talk like that about the ruler of our people. Or no one would have said, you shouldn't call people ugly names, Jesus. Haven't you been to Sunday school? On the other hand, remember that in us, anger is dangerous. James chapter 1 verse 20 says that human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. That does not mean we're never to be angry. It didn't say that. With that truth in mind, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 to be angry, but then immediately adds, but don't sin with your anger. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament I can think of where we're told to do a thing and then immediately told, but be careful not to sin in doing it. Why? Why is it worded that way? Because the simple fact is, at times we must be angry, and at the exact same time we are expressing that anger, we must equally remember that we are in a place where we are very capable of letting our anger spill over the line into unrighteous expressions. That's why a few verses later he says, put away all anger. He means don't be an angry person. Don't keep your inner fire of anger stoked so it can blow up. Don't have a pilot light of constant potential anger burning in you. Then when you do have to be angry, it will not be an overreaction, but a godly response to what is wrong. Now, this is not hard to understand if we think Hebraically. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Then the very next verse says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own estimations. See, you must answer a fool, but not in the spirit of a fool. That's simple to understand. It's just not simple to do. It's hard to not want to become extremely angry and verbally, even physically, Abusive when dealing with sophists who willfully twist truth for ungodly purposes, which is, among other things, what a fool means in Scripture. This is, by the way, exactly what Jesus was warning us about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, when he says, If a person calls his brother a fool, he's in danger of hellfire. And Jesus is not saying your salvation is canceled by the use of the word fool. Jesus is never under any circumstances so simplistic and religiously shallow as that would make him if that's what he meant. No, he's describing a conflict between two people and he describes three different levels of anger. Now, all three levels are bad. If you nurse an ongoing bad attitude towards your brother, you're in danger of coming to earthly judgment and an earthly court system. Second, if you get angry enough to call him Raka, which is, uh, means basically empty-headed idiot, you may end up before the Sanhedrin. This always makes me a little uncomfortable. I remember when Kira was about three, she was in the back seat. 
and we were driving down the street and school was out so there were parking places and the, and the traffic wasn't really bad which was the total opposite when school was in and all the college students were there and you couldn't get around anywhere and uh, we're driving down the road there and I'm evidently pretty happy about the fact that I can make it down the road and this little voice in the back seat says, Popo, where are all the idiots? Anyway, Raka means empty-headed idiot, and that man puts you in front of the Sanhedrin. Now, remember, why would that bring you before the Sanhedrin? Because in Jewish wisdom, Lashan Hara is evil speech, and it is murderous. They would have warned an angry person he's in danger of committing an act equal to murder. But then Jesus goes farther than that. He goes to the heart, as always. The use of the word fool here, when he says, if you if you call your brother a fool, it has far worse meaning in, in that context than we tend to use it in modern English. He's saying, if you're so angry that you tell your brother he is a damn fool headed for and deserving hell, then you are operating under the very hellfire spirit and are in danger of it yourself. Now, this is vitally important, especially for us who are engaged in debate and open conflict in the public arena. I've had to seek the Lord earnestly about my anger toward those on the left whom I could easily sin against with the very words Jesus rebukes here. And since I'm not so stupid as to think I'm more discerning about this than Jesus, I hit the floor on my face about it. Not only is it dangerous because of the negative aspects, the hatred, which is an attitude of hell and can bring hell into you till you end up in it, but it is a dangerous thing because it never wins a convert. Who has ever been won over by being called a damn fool? Now, someone may argue, but it says don't call your brother a fool. Now, no left-wing idiot is my brother. Well, again, Jesus is not stupid. He'll not parley words with us about whether our enemy is our brother or not. He covers this in other places like love your enemies. Do we really want to argue that unless an opponent is my brother, literally, then, then it's okay to damn him? I hardly think so. And as hard as it may seem to figure, we do have brothers and sisters who embrace certain leftist positions for reasons we need to try to learn to understand. That doesn't mean we agree with it or excuse it, but we need to understand it and not just damn it. Now, it would be very easy right now, and I would love to do it, to, to just go off on the character of our Father in Heaven, to know that He hates hatred when it's turned toward people, and He loves hatred when it's turned toward evil. But we must leave that for another time, one we will pursue, Lord willing. And I'm sure he is. The point is even clearer that if your opponent is not your brother, he ain't likely to ever be your brother. If your approach is to curse him, we're to seek to imitate God, Ephesians 5.1. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the children of your Father in heaven, Matthew Matthew 5.45. So what is the family resemblance that the children of the Father are to have? Luke 6.35 says he is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Exodus 34.6 says God is slow to anger. 
First Peter 3, 9. Why is he slow to anger? Because he's not willing that anyone should perish. Psalm 78, verse 38. He is compassionate and forgives sin and does not destroy. He often holds back his anger and does not stir up all his fury. For our anger to be righteous anger, it must be like God's anger, centered in truth and justice, motivated by love for life and good, focused on redemption and rescue, and slow in heating up. But let's not deceive ourselves. You cannot be godly and refuse to ever get angry. And you cannot be godly and allow your anger to manifest in an ungodly way either. You must be angry or we're not like God. You must not sin with your anger or you're not like God. We must not answer fools foolishly or we play into the hands of foolishness. We must answer fools for their own sake. And if they will not repent, we must answer their foolishness by resisting it. If we keep a constant head of steam boiling inside us over the evils we hate, we will be in danger of stirring up the wrong kind of anger and expressing it sinfully. I've been there many times. Oh, it feels like righteous indignation and evil, but it does not produce good fruit. Jesus said a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit, Luke 6, 43. So any anger that does not bear good fruit is not righteous anger, it's sinful. And if we want to keep a constant force stirred up in us, it needs to be the force of love, not anger at evil. Love will always be angry at evil, but it will not be always angry in case evil happens to show up. Love will always respond against evil correctly, but anger on its own will almost always respond in the very spirit of wrong that it claims to be fighting against. If we do not pay attention to the evils we hate, we're simply ignoring our responsibility to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Ignorance is bliss only till the enemies burst down your door. Then ignorance is seen to be just what it is, moral insanity. But love is the power which sees clearly, acts righteously, and never caves in or gives up. So what do we do? Well, I may again only be speaking for myself, but I have to confess I had to get set free of a totally wrong-headed idea of why we are called to act in love instead of retaliating against evil in raging anger. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, clear as a bell, do not return evil for evil. It just seemed totally counter to sanity to me to hear exhortations to love your enemies. Because Jesus said it, I bowed to it on the mind level because I love him and know better than to willfully contradict him. But I needed him to help me understand what it was he was after in us. So I have learned over a thousand years the great wisdom of what the Bible teaches about successfully confronting evil and wrong. We must lay aside any idea that Jesus is calling us to be wimps who slavishly submit to evil because we are trying to be nice. Jesus never called anyone to be nice. Nice comes from an old French root word which means weak, feckless, insipid, and indecisive. 
That's one reason, by the way, why nice guys don't usually get the girl. But that's an aside. We're not called to be nice. We're called to be good. That means a force for right that produces the fruit of goodness. We're here to battle evil. Jesus knows battling evil with evil will produce more evil. So he killed death, not by fighting, but by dying, then rose from the grave and told us to take up our cross and follow his lead and do the same. If you want to study this entire subject in more detail, if you'll visit our Nightlight archives and go to the archive section, you can listen to number 217, which is called Sticks and Stones, number 236, which is called Responding in the Opposite Spirit, number 219, which is called Overcoming Evil, number 196, which is called Don't Resist Evil, 197, which is called Nice versus Good, and 198, which is called Passivity and Deception. We're entering the time now in our history in which everything will become what it really is. The tares that look like wheat will be shown fruitless, and the wheat that look like tares will begin to produce fruit. Only God can finally sort it all out. But in the meantime, we must learn how to be light to those that are in the dark. Not heat, but light. We must seek to overpower the stoikikos, remember them, and find ways to communicate in a way that can be heard and understood. And if we're moved by love and not unrighteous anger, we will get through to many while being resisted and hated by others. But that's just the way it is. We learn to walk in the power of the Spirit and trust God to manifest His character, the fruit of the Spirit in us. And if anger is especially a problem, we specifically ask for grace in that area. Also, we ask for grace to be bold as a lion if we are too passive. But if we can really get this, that God is calling on us not to just be nice, but to be good, we'll find a new courage and vision to penetrate the strongholds of evil and be the change we are longing to see. Let me let you in on some of my own private battles with this struggle. This is an excerpt from my journal written in London after a huge battle with pro-leftist church leaders in 1996. I start off the entry into my journal with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, written in real big letters. Be very patient with everybody. Always keep your temper. I've got it underlined in red. I wrote, In the middle of the London conference, I was thrust into a heated confrontation with a left-wing group. In the midst of it all, one of them said rather forlornly, quote, We won't ever win this debate. I wrote him a note later saying, If I win a debate but fail to win you, I have won nothing. It looks as if I may have rescued the communication and may maybe even possibly begun building a relationship. But, oh Lord, how much energy it takes for me to keep from exploding. How long have I struggled with what I want to call righteous anger that never seems to yield righteous fruit? Then I have a quote under that by C.S. Lewis who says, Anger is the anesthetic of the mind. Reasonableness and amiability, both cheerful habits of a godly mind, are far stronger in the end than the spleen. To rail 
is the sad privilege of the loser. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 17. This is all still written in my journal. See, I can write all this stuff down. I just didn't know how to do it. Proverbs 14, Proverbs 14 17. He that gets quickly angry will then act and speak foolishly. Proverbs 15, 1. A soft answer quiets wrath, but grievous words stir up more anger. Proverbs 16.32, he who is slow to anger is better warrior than the mighty. He who rules his own spirit is a greater warrior than he who takes a city. Proverbs 19.11, the prudent man defers his anger. It is his glory to overlook an insult. Proverbs 22.24, make no friendship with an angry man. Ecclesiastes 7.9, don't be hasty in getting angry. For such comes from the bosom of fools. Well, this was written in my journal nearly 18 years ago. And here I am now, still having to face these issues in my heart. But I'm not merely struggling over them now because I want to be a nicer person. I wasn't really struggling for that then either. No, I'm struggling with finding a more effective way to communicate the truth so healing and salvation and deliverance can come to people because the world around me is going insane and falling apart. And I cannot be satisfied to sit back and say, well, it's the end of the age. That's just the way it's all supposed to happen. You know, everything's supposed to get worse and worse and worse. Let's just hang on and hope for the rapture. Nope. We must occupy and take all the ter territory we can in the name of the king until the king comes. So what do we do next? Well, Jesus made it very clear in Mark chapter 3, verse 25, that a house divided against itself cannot stand. This is true of a family or of a nation. In nearly every way imaginable, we in America seem to be a house divided some stats say we are about 50-50 and that even though this is a stalemate and has kept us in gridlock, at least it has held off chaos by not allowing us to tip over in favor of leftist ideology. But other researchers say, no, we're no longer at 50-50. We're past the tipping point and are dipping more and more toward chaos and socialistic tyranny. Well, Statistics can often be helpful on some issues, like batting averages or football forecasts, but not so helpful for real clarity and understanding of where we are as a nation. Because there's always a factor that is impossible to measure in statistics, because it's not of this world and depends on the effective, effectiveness of the prayers of God's people. Time in the presence of God, listening for His heart, and reading his word will give us a far greater and more accurate measure of where we are. Here are just a few prayerful thoughts that I want to present to you for your consideration. Do we truly have over 150 million people in this country who want a Marxist regime? Meaning, they really want a huge nanny government who takes care of them from cradle to grave. They want their children to be taken from them and brainwashed by a government mind-controlled central propaganda school system in which the children are taught to report on their parents' private lives. 
They want open borders so the entire world can pour in upon us like ants until our very identity as a nation is impossible to maintain. They want their teenage children and younger children sexually active, experimenting with all manner of perversions, soaked in filth, or they want Islam deciding legal cases by Sharia law instead of the U.S. Constitution. I know I better stop here now, but I could go on like this for another hour listing the insanity. I think the answer is no. We do not have half the country who wants that. We really have only a small core of real leftists, which we have passively and stupidly allowed to take over most of the media, communications, education, and political leadership of this country. But like the little old Wizard of Oz hiding behind the huge public address system over in the corner with smoke and mirrors and scary images controlling the atmosphere of the entire room, the media pulls all the levers and pushes all the buttons that people erroneously call news. And then they believe it. The stoikikos under the prince of the power of the air, including the air waves, I suppose, keeps people in the dark. Maybe people do this willfully because they just want to believe lies, or maybe, like so many, I encounter every day, who are just hardworking, busy, trusting, good people who don't have time to do what I do, and truly are unwittingly ignorant. Now Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, if our gospel, our good news, is hid, it is hid from those who are perishing whom the God of this world has blinded in their minds. I know that in proper context, this is referring to the satanic blindness which keeps people from hearing and embracing the gospel, but I think it is within the bounds of acceptable hermeneutics to expand it to also mean the entire world system that keeps people blinded to all the enemy is doing and to all God's word intends for life and godliness. We tend to think that this blindness over them is some kind of supernatural satanic power that is sort of like a spell Satan casts. But as real as demonic supernatural powers are, from the New Testament, I don't think the blindness of people is really as is as witchy as that sounds. No, it is the culture, the trends, the whims, the fashions of this age, manipulated by the spirits that are at work in the hearts and minds of those who are in rebellion against God. See Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. This force will not let the light of truth in at all, and especially the light of the truth of the gospel. Romans 1 says, Men are not in total ignorance of truth, but they suppress the truth. They are willfully ignorant and conveniently embrace anything that agrees with what they want to believe instead of reality. Jesus said, In John 3.19, men love darkness because their deeds are evil. It's only grace that can break open this self-imposed prison which Satan manipulates with the stuff of the world. Now, it's not Pelagian error for any of you who may worry about that to say that there is a symbiotic union between God and his people. Only God's grace can enlighten and save anyone, and he alone is the initiator of that gracious action. When he sends a movement of his convicting presence into the hearts of people is when that happens. We're not managing God by our response. 
but he does like it. We're not equal partners with God, but we are partners. When we become seriously united with him, with what matters to him, in that limited sense, I call this a symbiotic relationship. God needs nothing, is dependent on no one, and is not in the least diminished if we don't respond. But he has chosen to make us the most precious treasure to him in the universe by spending the most precious treasure in the universe to redeem us, the precious blood of Christ. So when his people respond to the pull of his spirit on our hearts, the call to seek him, The more we seek him, the more he calls, Psalm 27, verse 8. When he comes, we cry out for him even more. And a good cycle begins, which also transforms the very atmosphere from one of cold indifference to God or rote religious routine to a desperate hunger for his love and life and presence. This is what some people call revival. But whatever you want to call it, it is what God's heart longs for, and it's what mankind desperately needs. But God will only give it when he, in his wisdom and sovereign grace, sees hearts that are responding. Think what it would be like if God decided to enter the atmosphere of your house, your town, the entire nation in such a tangible way as to fully awaken the hearts of all of us to that which is most vitally urgent and precious. Now, I can hear some of us thinking, well, Jesus said he'd never leave me or forsake me. He's with me all the time. I'm positionally his. Listen, with all due respect, I know all about positional relationship. I have a, a, a marriage certificate that proves me and Mary got married. It doesn't mean a thing if I'm not loving her and, and responding to her. Surely I don't need to explain that to any of us. This is part of what's destroying the effectiveness of the body of Christ in the West is an arrogant, insipid, shallow misapplication of positional truth without the passion and hunger for its reality to be manifested in a spirit, soul, and body. Here's a real example of what I'm talking about. When the great move of the Holy Spirit took place in the Hebrides Islands off the coast of Scotland, it was described like this. This is from the biography of Duncan Campbell. Quote, The presence of God was a universal, inescapable fact. At home, in the church, and by the roadside, The very air seemed to be tingling with divine vitality. One night a man came to a pastor's home in great concern. The minister brought him into the study and asked, What touched you? I haven't seen you at any of the services. No, he replied, I haven't been to church. But this this presence is in the air. I can't get away from the Spirit. In the fields or at the weaving looms, men were overcome and prostrated on the ground before God. One said, The grass beneath my feet and the rocks around me seem to cry, Flee to Christ for refuge. The agony of conviction was terrible to behold, but we rejoiced knowing that out of the deep travail would be birthed a rich, fertile Christian experience, unlike the cheap, easy-going believism that produces no radical moral change. 
Since we're seemingly able to argue over just about everything in the body of Christ, there is an argument among believers between whether revival is the sovereign work of God alone or if it is God's response to desperate prayer. And of course, the answer is yes. It seems far more fruitful to spend our energies praying than conversing about prayer. But I do think it is wise to warn against the idea that we can ever manage God with our prayers on the one side or, on the other side, think of God as unresponsive to prayer and, and just a, a, a distant, untouchable being that sovereignly does what he wants, whether we cry out to him or not. God cannot be managed, and God longs to respond to the cries of his people. I offer no scripture text for these statements, since it's the whole Bible I'd be referring to. So if it is right to say that there are probably only a small number of truly committed leftists on what we call the left, and even they are not outside the reach of grace, by the way, and if there is a small but real core of believing Christians praying for the Holy Spirit to do whatever it takes to bring the power of the gospel first to the church and then through the church to the world, then we have a strong reason to be encouraged and to move forward no matter what new frustrating or even traumatizing event hits the morning news. If the great majority is uninformed or misinformed, just living from day to day in what has been called quiet desperation or, even if not that, loud indifference, how can we help awaken people to truth? If we begin to pray for the shroud to be lifted and for the presence of God to become manifest in such a degree that hunger for reality is awakened, could a nation be salvaged? Maybe so. Part of the nation? Maybe so. But first, it has to happen among us. We must prepare ourselves for this level of God's dealings to begin in us. 1 Peter 4.17, For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin at the house of God. Do you long for it to come? Unless we're trying to live with secret sin, in which case we do not want the judgment of God to come, unless we're trying to keep a little bit of hell in our private little corner of heaven, then anyone who belongs to God must be longing for the purging fire of cleansing to come deliver the house of God from the confused mixture of Babylonian idolatry that has adulterated our life and our worship. How I long for such a cleansing to come, one that produces what Paul described after he wrote his hard letter to the Corinthians. He wrote to them what we might very well hear God say to Western Christianity soon. Depending on the degree of the shaking that is coming, Paul wrote, and I want you to hear this as if it's the Lord speaking to us, even if I caused you sorrow, I do not regret it. I see that my letter, or in this case, my judgments, I see that they hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way. Godly sorrow brings repentance and that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow brings death. So what is this sorrow produced in you, this godly sorrow? It's produced earnestness, eagerness, 
to clear yourselves. Indignation against evil. Alarm over the situation. Longing for God. Concern for others. And a longing and readiness to see justice done. Oh, what an opposite picture that is of the incredible, mindless apathy that is America and England and most of the West. When I speak of the salvaging of a nation, I'm not necessarily meaning a return to the way it was, getting America back, some of these other slogans. For I do not think the way it was, whichever part of was we might be focusing on, is of any value to God at all. Go back to what? Racism in the name of spirituality? Democrats wearing sheets and hanging black people? Or Republicans using the Bible as a cover for political advancement while supporting ungodly business practices? Or how about returning to the moral majority days when Christians somehow equated Americanism and militarism and the cross with the American flag? Do we go back to that? There's nothing to go back to. Our vision must be far greater than that, and it must move toward the kingdom that is here and that is coming. Am I saying there's no real Christianity on the right? Do we have just a large core of real right-wingers who are just white supremacists and anti-government, xenophobic, sexist bigots? Or do we have just a tiny group of those? Yes, I would say there's only a small number of such right-wingers, and even they are not, not outside the reach of the grace of God. So again, in the middle is a massive majority of people from all walks of life and all levels of society who are either willfully uninformed or unwillingly misinformed and who truly support what they honestly believe is the best for them and their children. I believe that is much truer to the, to the reality than saying 50% of the country is headed toward Marxism and the other 50 wants America back. I believe most people love their children if I love their children too, can I find a way to love their parents enough to build a bridge? Now, when I say this sort of thing in public, people sometimes ask, do you mean build a political bridge or a Christian bridge? See, the enemy has been so successful in feeding us the Gnostic lie which separates the world from the kingdom of God that even believers are brainwashed with the so-called separation of church and state and its misinterpreted meaning, that God has no place in politics. This then easily gets more twisted into God's people have no place in public life. Then they sit around waiting for the rapture. But as I say over and over, we are called to be here now, and as long as we are to occupy this space, we are to occupy it. And I don't mean to be disrespectful again to the rapture. But please, can we, can we live in the present world and obey the commands of Jesus? We must build bridges of goodness and understanding wherever we can by the grace of God and the truth of God. Now, for instance, think about this. Those on the right tend to think that what is wrong with people is only inside individual people. They would say something like, well, the problem with the inner city is something inside people. They just choose to be lazy, selfish, inactive, dependent, and this leads to poverty and crime. Their plight is their own willful fault. They need to get a job. 
they would only be partly right. According to Scripture, there is something definitely wrong inside each of us, and it's called the sin nature. And we're all capable of being all the things just listed and much worse. And we're capable of it whether we live in inner city New Orleans or upper city Manhattan. When the right says that the problem is in people, they are right. But if they mean just get a job, there are more forces at work against people than their inner condition. Now those on the left say the problem is not what's in people, but what's done to people. It's not individual sin, but corporate systems that are evil. It is the hard breaks in life, and the lack of opportunity, and the environment, and racism, and poverty caused by these systems, and people are only victims of the system. So if they could just be given enough outward support, they could make it. And the systems just need to be destroyed if they are capitalist, or if they're socialist, the system needs to be turned into a gigantic, monstrous nanny state that will take care of everybody. This point of view is right in that there are evil systems, but they're obviously not totally right. This ignores the reality of sin, which is in all of us and from which we need deliverance by God's grace. And they seem to always forget that big systems are made of little people. So the sin is always warped and woofed throughout both the people and the systems. The left is correct when it points out the suffering and the lack of opportunity and the woundedness that has helped bind people into patterns of suffering and failure caused by evil megasystems, but it becomes the worst sort of evil megasystem imaginable when it builds big government central control systems meant to salvage society. Saving society, quote, always ends up meaning saving a system at the expense of the individual. That's why Lenin said with a smirk, to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs, meaning skulls. The left says answers are corporate and big government is the only answer. So it is by its very nature godless and idolatrous. Government is God. If big government runs over an individual in quest to make good for the majority, that's okay. Those on the right say, no, if you damage a single person in your quest to save the collective, you're doing evil. And this is the biblical stance. But out-of-control capitalism, centered in money for money's sake, which is power for power's sake, becomes the exact same mega-machine as socialism. The Marxist serving the socialist system is no more in bondage than the middle management executive working 14 hours a day, seven days a week for the good of the company. Two totally opposite systems united by one thing, bondage to idolatry. Only the kingdom of God can save them. How do we reach them? Well, when I was a kid in a high school football stadium, two equal but opposite sides who all spoke exactly the same language with the same accent was divided by one thing, and that was the color of the uniforms on the field. Every other aspect of our culture was exactly the same. We were united in every other way except football teams. Years later, I experienced how exciting I felt when I heard a Texas accent in the Chicago airport. I felt a bit alienated from my fellow Americans, but the sound of a southern drawl was comforting. 
Not, not long after that, I learned how much, not just a Texas accent, but any general Southern accent could be comforting when everybody around me seems to have a foreign accent. American, but foreign. Then I found myself in a foreign country where I desperately was happy to hear any English at all. It was so comforting to be on a train full of East Germans and hear an American lady asking directions. The more alien the outer culture, the more focused my attraction for anything interiorly familiar became. Huge, pronounced differences that were making me feel alone and on the moon faded as I focused on the one part that I could relate to and connect to. Now, that's all understandable. We all understand that in our own experience. But see if this connects with you. A few years ago, I was driving from Hickory to Wilkesboro when an oncoming car came around a winding bend. The road was slick with wintry mix, and suddenly the car was erratically careening towards me when it became airborne. It was surreal to watch an object meant to roll down a road seemingly float through the air, flip over and land upside down on the side of the road. When I and another driver reached the wrecked car, I was not even for one second put off by the fact that the car was covered with left-wing extremist bumper stickers. All I had on my mind were the people inside and getting them to safety. They were all okay, by the way, thankfully. But do you see the point here? In the football stadium, what united us was merely football uniforms. What divided us was football uniforms. In the regional airport, what united us was a Texas accent. In the Chicago airport, what united us was a southern accent. And in Europe, what united us was English. And the more the outer differences grew, the more open I became to any one thing familiar that I could hook up to. When the crashing car became the terrible, threatening outer reality, then what was uniting me with the folks inside was our common humanity. Left-wing bumper stickers were way down the list of issues when compared to getting those people out of potential danger. I see the present culture careening toward me with precious cargo inside. It's mummified in insipid leftist slogans. I can easily overlook any outer differences to find the one unifying treasure and focus on that and that's our common humanity. A few years ago, Sting did a song called I Hope the Russians Love Their Children Too. The lyrics go, In Europe and America, there's a growing feeling of hysteria, conditioned to respond to all the threats in the rhetoric speeches of the Soviets. Mr. Khrushchev said, We will bury you. I don't subscribe to this point of view. It would be such an ignorant thing to do if the Russians loved their children too. How can I save my little boy from Oppenheimer's deadly toy? There's no monopoly on common sense on either side of the political fence. We share the same biology 
regardless of ideology. Believe me when I say to you, I hope the Russians love their children too. So which side is right and which side is wrong? Both are correct in some ways and both are wrong in some ways. The left cannot see the human condition is one of sinful bondage within each individual soul. The loss of one soul in the name of salvaging the collective is a terrible loss. The right refuses to see the need for loving, supportive help for people. While rebuking the exaltation of the collective above the value of the individual, the right often damages many individuals because it is subject to the same potential mega-monstrosity in big business which the left wants to make with big government. The god of this world has both sides blinded. The power of darkness is always working behind, in, and through the earthly powers. But what if you love your children and find a way to build a bridge with someone on the opposite side from you who loves their children? Yeah, I know there are sadly many who evidently don't even love their children. They kill them. But that's part of the problem we're called to, to reach and minister to. They're not the majority, by the way, and even they are not out of the reach of grace. We must not see the battle against principalities and powers as our main focus. Love is the main focus. And that love will empower and inform us in how to fight the battle against the powers. Earthly human government is allowed by God for obvious necessary reasons, Romans 13 tells us. But earthly government is temporary and fallen, and is a form of power which evil always seeks to infiltrate and use for antichrist purposes. This is why it's always pictured in Scripture as a beast, a wild beast, or various forms of beasts which the Lamb will overcome and destroy. This is the meaning, by the way, of principalities and powers. The principality is the region, and the powers are the controlling forces over the region. You see this symbiotic relationship at work all through Scripture. Ezekiel 28 speaks of the king of Tyre and the prince of Tyre. Isaiah 14, the earthly king of Babylon and the light being above him in the heavenlies. Daniel chapter 10, the earthly government of Persia and the prince of Persia who fights Michael the archangel. There's a spirit over peoples and nations. There's a story I've never been able to fully verify that tells of an early Hindu guru who in the mid-1800s could not disembark from his ship upon the arrival of the ship in New York Harbor because it is said that he felt the overpowering presence of the spirit of Christianity over America, that it was too fully present for him to be able to function. Now, from what I've learned of the early impact of such swamis as Vivekananda, As early as the late 1880s, this story of the retreating Hindu Swami seems apocryphal. Still, it offers a vivid picture of a fact that there is a spiritual identity and ethos, both formed by a people and that forms a people. Psalm 22 says, The Lord sits enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Evil spirits mimic this reality by coming down into pagan and hard rock gatherings, enthroning themselves by invitation of those gathered. The atmosphere or spirit of a place or a nation has everything to do with what the populace is influenced by 
and then what that same populace invites to rule over them. So it's a circular, self-increasing relationship. My best friend, Tommy Prestridge, made a very important statement to me today about the increasing militarization of many local police departments in America. He said, this is not the result of some direct edict from the Obama administration necessarily to militarize as much as it is an unconscious but rising cooperation with a spirit over the country that is moving more and more towards a police state mentality. When he used this phrase concerning the spirit of the country, my mind immediately caught the accuracy of his statement that when the very atmosphere of a place changes due to some corporate agreement that populations embrace, when enough of the population embraces this mindset, then the stoikikos, the elemental spiritual forces we mentioned before, come take up residence in that atmosphere, which they had previously only been trying to influence. But they influence it enough till enough people set in agreement with it, and they provide the platform for the spirits to come. Their penetration takes over the milieu that is only possible if a spiritual vacuum has been opened up by the absence of the presence of God. Instead of the happy and holy dance between a life-giving God and his obedient, responsive people, it becomes, again, I use the term symbiotic. A symbiotic dance between the willful, sinful people and the demonic influences they have invited. The demonic influences that have been oppressing and manipulating the people, and then the people invite the demons. They invite the evil, then the evil increases and sinful atmosphere increases. Sinful atmosphere seduces people into more evil, and that practice evil corporately forms a throne for demonic evil to perch upon back and forth. You get the picture. This is the very opposite of the dance I described earlier, where a people respond to the sovereign touch of a loving God and begin to cry out for him to come, which he responds to, thus beginning a cycle of goodness and truth. The powers of darkness mimic this dance, and it becomes a dance macabre. Now, there's a way to bridge this right-left gap, not politically, but with truth and love. It's already happening. It's already happened. Common Core, the leftist educational ploy to totally undermine your children's education, as well as parental oversight of your children, was not set in motion by some leftist organization. It was done by big business. It is thankfully being overturned and thrown out of state after state by a cooperative effort of, get this, Democrat school teachers, Republican school teachers, members of the teachers' unions. In other words, not left or right, but clear-thinking people who love their children and who got the truth communicated to them in a clear, meaningful way, not through the lapdog media, but through other means. And they are defeating Common Core right and left. Thanks be to God. What if, by God's grace, the evil on both sides is becoming so arrogant, so transparent, so bold and buffoonish, that good people in the misinformed middle are beginning to see it? What if that is God's grace working through the shards of a shattered culture in order to deliver people on the left from the deception of humanism while delivering people on the right from the deception of hypernationalism? 
What if God is stripping his church of the political bondages we have been wearing as a robe of righteousness in order to allow people to see clearly the truth communicated by a rising church that manifests truth and love in Christ? What if the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ in John 17 is about to come to pass? Father, that they all may be one as you and I are one so that the world may know you sent me. Can you at least stop what you're doing and take a couple of seconds to imagine it? Now, what has all this got to do with our mouth? Well, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew 12, 34 says. Proverbs 4, 23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, because of out of it, out of it come the forces of life. Mark eleven twenty four says, If you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in your heart, but believe what you say shall come to pass, you shall have whatever you say. The first thing we've got to do is cleanse our lips of cursing, of backbiting, of gossip, of slander, of making people's faces pale, that includes people we don't like, people who are on the opposite end of where we are politically. And believe me, nobody knows better than I do how difficult it is when you see some of the horrendous, crazy, evil stuff that's being perpetrated. But it has not been stopped by our pushing back and our anger, has it? There's another greater way, a better way. Find ways to reach the hearts of people, not in some mushy, manipulative way, but in the power of the Spirit. First Peter two nine, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, special people, called out people, who've been called out to show forth the praises of Him, who has called us out of darkness into His glorious light. I've said this in a previous session. I want to reiterate it one more time in closing. A chosen generation generates. What do we generate? The life of God. Why are we a royal priesthood? Priests, the word priest means bridge builder. We generate the life of God in order to build a bridge to those we're trying to reach who are without life and light. We're a holy nation. What does that mean? An alternative society. We are now the alternate culture. We are now the radicals. We are the ones who are against the system for the system's sake. A people who love, a people who keep our word, who keep our relationships, first with God, then with family, and then in loving the world. We're set apart to God without compromise. We are against the world for the world's sake. And we show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his glorious light. The verse in The New Testament is reestablishing the call upon the church that was first placed upon the nation of Israel to be a light to the Gentile nations. That's Exodus 19, verse 6. Now the full body of Messiah will carry on that entire world-redeeming work right up to the end. If we will lay aside our preconceived dogmatic ideas about exactly how the end of the age will unfold and just do what we've just described, Generate, bridge build, intercede, be an alternate society set apart to God, manifesting his praise in the earth. 
We do not know what kind of miracles God will do to shake as well as salvage the nations.